All right. Okay, so uh, we are going to continue in our in our journey through First Samuel, um, and uh, and so where we've left off, uh, as Pastor Brian shared a couple weeks ago. Last week was our prayer and worship night, which I always appreciate. And if you haven't come to one of those yet, you really should. It's a it's a blessed time. But two weeks ago, Pastor Brian um, led us through chapter 15, where, where we see, we continue to see uh, the downward trajectory of King Saul and his reign and his, uh, his pattern of rebellion and disobedience against God, which again reaffirmed uh, what God had spoken through the prophet Samuel, that, um, that God's on the lookout, God's on the hunt for a new king. Okay, and so, so today we, we, we're, we're going to begin to interact with David in, in First and Second Samuel. They've got these, these, these three main characters, right, through, through, through both books. Samuel, who we've, uh, we're kind of coming down to the end of his time, we're winding his time down. And then there's Saul, and we're sort of right in the middle of his whole story, and we're beginning to be introduced to David. And it's impossible... Um, I think it's impossible for us to truly understand the purpose and the divine call um, and the rising up, the raising up of David um, fully without also understanding what's come before, without also, whether it's fair or not, and, and, and sometimes comparisons are, are difficult and sometimes they're not fair, um, uh, but, but it's almost impossible to talk about David's reign and David's successes and David's failures without also comparing um, those things to the reign and the successes and failures of Saul, right? Um, and not only is that unavoidable, uh, but I think it's intentional. I believe God has, has woven those two men's lives together for us to see a very important principle um, of what happens when we search out and demand Something that humanity values, something that we see value in, that we think this is what I want, this is what I need, and God, this is what I demand for you to give me. And we juxtapose and compare that to what, when God says, okay, you've had that, I've given you what you've asked for, you've experienced the emptiness and the failures of that, now let me show you the good thing that I have. So the, the, the comparison of what man values and what God values. And we're going to see that coming up over and over again, not just in chapter 16, but through the whole uh, trajectory of David's reign. Um, this is going to be the recurring theme. And, and I believe it points us back to Jesus. And my, my whole philosophy of, uh, of, of understanding the Old Testament is every bit of the Old Testament, um, even the parts we think are boring, even the law, even the prophets, even the things that are hard to kind of get through, all of that in some way points us back to Jesus because all of it prepares the way and reminds us of our need over and over again for a Savior, right? That we can't do it on our own. We can't be good enough on our own. We can't, we can't do enough on our own. Even if God puts us in the perfect situation, we still need a Savior. And so I believe that even more so in the story of David, we are pointed back to Jesus, okay? Um, and so, again, I want to just remind us that, that Saul was, was the people's choice. Uh, when, when Samuel first encounters him and he says, here's what God's got planned for you. He's, he's called you to be king. And, and, and Samuel says, he's going to, I'm, I'm going to anoint you as king. Uh, Samuel uses these words. He says, you know, to Saul, you and your family are the ones on whom is all the desire of Israel, 
okay? Um, and that's back in chapter 9, verse 20. He says, you know, I, you know you're, you're the one on, on, whom all, on whom all the desires of Israel rest. And you would think that would be kind of flattering, right? That sounds like a compliment. You know, like what if, you know, someone came up to you and it says, yeah, all the hopes and dreams of the nation rest on you. That's kind of, well, that, that, that's a lot of pressure, um, but everyone wants you. you know, you're the one that people want. That's essentially what Samuel is telling Saul. The people desire you. You're the people's choice. Again, you would think that would be a compliment, and maybe Saul took it that way. Um, but as we see, um, God's making a point. So there's the people's choice. And then we're going to see in our passage today in chapter 16, uh, and we're not going to get there quite yet, but at the end of verse 1 of chapter 16, I like how the New King James puts it. God says, I have provided for myself a king among the sons of Jesse. So God is saying, again, here's the people's choice. Um, you're the one that the whole nation is longing for. Um, that's been a failure. And now I'm going to provide my king. I'm going to provide my choice. So the people's choice versus God's choice. And then um, all of this revolves around this statement that God makes to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And you guys have heard this. Okay, so I just want to take a minute to kind of land here before we get into 16 um, uh, and, and, and make sure we understand what God is saying. In 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, this is after Saul's first failure uh, when, when God says, okay, I'm, I'm rejecting Saul as king. I'm moving on from him. I'm going to bring someone else. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, it says, Samuel's talking to Saul. He says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, okay? And so the king that God chooses, the leader, the ruler, the man that God chooses isn't a man who people look to with admiration. He's not a man that has the outward leadership qualities we would think you would need to be a good leader. Um, And God's gonna tell Samuel later, don't look at the outward, I look at the heart. He's gonna be a man who is molded after the heart of God, For the longest time, I wondered, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Because that could mean a lot of things. And I think think almost all of these could be equally valid. It could be that uh, it's a man who pursues the heart of God, so he chases after the heart of God. That's why he says after the heart of God. It could just be someone who's passionate about the glory of God, and certainly David was both of those things. But what I really think it means when it says a man after God's own heart is a man whose heart is in the same mold as God's heart. So if, if God's heart you know, had a mold, and, and you were to take that mold, and you were to pour into it whatever hearts are made out of, um, and open that up and take that and put it into another person, a, a, a man whose heart is molded after the heart of God. That's what God's looking for. And so as we read about David, we're also... We're also challenged to ask ourselves, whose heart is my heart molded after? Whose heart do I passionately pursue and chase after? Okay, because um, as much as David, and we're going to see that David is kind of a precursor and, 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 and um, kind of like a symbol of the coming reign of Christ, he's also a mirror for us to see ourselves in and ask ourselves, where are we in this? So, um, a man after God's own heart. Um, and we're going to see that what that means is that God wants someone who is both servant and shepherd. 
that the ruler that God desires is both servant and shepherd. All right, so chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? I'm going to stop right there and back up, because we see at the end of chapter 15, the very last verse says in verse 35, And Samuel went no more to see Saul. This is after Saul's second major failure, and he uh, he. He disobeys, and then he lies, and then he just he, he, he kind of reveals his heart as being, as being full of pride and full of insecurity and full of fear in a lot of ways. And so these things drive him away from, from loyalty and obedience to God. And, um, and so because of that, God rejects him as king again. And so um, uh, Samuel confronts him with these things. And in verse 35, it says, Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so for as difficult a time as Saul gave Samuel, you know, for as many times as Samuel had to go and be like, Saul, what are you doing? You know better. Why are you doing this? You would think that when God says, okay, I'm done with Saul. We're starting over. You would think Samuel would have been like, great. That's, it's about time. Let's get this ball rolling, right? You would think that Samuel would have been frustrated enough with Saul Um, that he would be excited to finally be rid of this failure king or perhaps maybe even be hopeful that the Israelites would finally be at a place where they can recognize God as their king, where they've experienced the failure of of human leadership, and now they're ready to acknowledge divine leadership. Uh, But no, we don't find Samuel excited. We don't find him hopeful. We don't find him looking forward to what's next He is in mourning. And that's where we find him at the beginning of chapter 16 when God says, how long will you mourn for Saul? And so I asked the question, I asked myself, why would Samuel be mourning? And I think that Samuel, like the rest of Israel, had high hopes. They they had high hopes for this man. And Saul started out really well. We know that, that Saul... um, he defeated armies. He, he, he prophesied. He was anointed. Uh, the scripture tells us that God gave him a, a new heart, and he was anointed by the Spirit of God. Um, and so it's possible that um, when God rejects Saul as king and when the failure of his reign is brought to full fruition, that Samuel is in mourning um, because he feels there's a sense of hope that has been lost. Maybe he's lost sight of hope. Okay, maybe that's part of it. But I think also we see that Samuel has a real, and he, he had a real heart for Saul. If we look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 through 11, is that one of the verses we have up there? Okay, yeah, I forgot to pull it up on my phone, so I'm going to turn around and read this. Okay, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And listen to this. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. I want to just focus on that last part of it, that this first time when God says, you know, Saul is rejected. I regret that I have set him up as king. Um, And it grieved Samuel. And he cried all night. When was the last time we cried all night about anything? You know? When was the last time you were so grieved by something that you and God had a heartfelt, intense, tear-filled conversation for hours and hours? 
I believe that Samuel isn't just doing this because he feels like a failure. Um, I believe that Samuel deeply cared for Saul. And we have to remember that before Saul's failures, there were a few years there of, of like I said, some hopeful signs. Um, Victor and I both have, uh, have come from a, a ministry, a, a background in youth ministry. And maybe some of you have also experienced that where uh, maybe you've had someone that you've been trying to mentor, someone that you've brought under your wing, someone that you've been trying to disciple and lead and guide. And, and there's a lot of joy and challenge in that process. And one of the most heartbreaking things um, for anyone who has been in that kind of ministry over years um, is to see someone who you have, by the, by, you know, by the grace and hopefully the power of God, you've tried to, to mentor and bring along and to see them fall away. To see them get to a place where they, they reject God's authority, they reject God's sovereignty, and they decide, I'm just going to do it my way. Um, there's a real grief that's experienced there. Um, and so I feel like Samuel here, he is, he's grieving for Saul um, because he loves him, because he cares about him. And in spite of everything Saul has done, in spite of his failures and his rebellion, Samuel still has a heart for him. And we see that um, Samuel does not mourn alone. It says at the end of uh, chapter 15, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now this passage kind of gives us trouble. Uh, because how can God regret anything, right? I mean, is that, I mean, anyone else, like for me, whenever I read and God regretted, like, ah, oh, this kind of rubbed me the wrong way. You know? um, we regret things as human beings when we make mistakes, right? Like, oh, I made a bad choice. I shouldn't have done that. I regret that choice, right? So when we read God regrets, we think, oh, does that mean, is God acknowledging that he made a mistake, uh, it's not the first time we read this, all the way back in Genesis, you know, when, when he floods the earth, he says, you know, I regret that I even made uh, humanity to begin with, right? So it's God acknowledging a mistake, but that's not what we're seeing here. Um, that word regret, I believe, is um, at this point in history, uh, a, a poor translation. You know, words kind of evolve over time. Words kind of take on new meaning, and they lose some of their nuanced meaning, uh, but in, in the original Hebrew, the word is nokham. I might be mispronouncing that. I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Um, and like a lot of ancient words, this word nokham, it's very nuanced in how it can be interpreted and applied. And what I believe a better understanding of what's happening here is God doesn't regret in the sense that he's saying, I should have never done that. But he's, experienced, he's experiencing grief. God is saying, I am grieved that this is what it has come to. I am grieved that this is what I had to do in order to get us to the place where we need to go. Um, and anyone who's spent any time raising children um, knows that there comes a time, and oftentimes there comes multiple times, um, when you have to let your children make mistakes. Right? You have to make, you have to, you have to make a choice to allow your kids to make a wrong choice. And that's never easy. And as a parent, um, you can do that, and you can know that you're doing the right thing, and it can still grieve you. And you can regret that that's what you have to do. Um, and so I believe in the Scripture when it says that God regrets. I don't think, God doesn't make mistakes. Right? I, I don't think that I know that. God doesn't make mistakes. Um, but there are times when God allows things to happen, and he knows that that's the way it has to happen. But it still grieves him. Um, and so his heart, his heart mourns with Samuel. Um, but then as we get into chapter 16, 
uh, there comes a time, there, there's a time for mourning and there's a time to move on. And I think it's a testimony to God's grace and his patience that he allows um, Samuel this time uh, for mourning. And, and, uh, and one, so one of my constant prayers for myself and what I would encourage anyone who's following after Jesus to pray for yourself is that, in, Lord, in my stubbornness, um, Lord, I never want to put you in a situation where, where you have to grieve answering yes to one of my prayers. Does that make sense? Okay. Because we have to remember that, that Saul came about as king as an answer to prayer. And it wasn't, it wasn't a prayer that was done with the right intentions. We know that. The Israelites demanded a king so they could be like everyone else. So that's not the heart of God. But God answered yes. Um, and it was... It was a yes that caused him grief. And so my prayer for myself is, Lord, help me to never be so stubborn, so, so short-sighted, or so self-focused that you answering yes to one of my prayers is going to cause you grief and cause me no end of heartache. Okay? Um, <clears throat> so, um, so God calls Samuel out of this time of mourning. And again, I think mourning was appropriate. Um, whenever we endure loss of of any kind, whether it's real or perceived, it's important that we take time to mourn. But at the same time, when God is ready to move forward, when God's ready to, to pick us up and say, okay, it's time to move forward, it's important that we jump on board and do the same. Okay, because God is never, God never stays in one place. He's always moving us. He's always challenging us to continue to move forward. And if Samuel had stayed stuck in that moment, stuck in that mourning, stuck in that grief, he very well could have missed out on one of the most amazing encounters that he would ever have in his life. He would have missed out on the privilege of playing the role that God had for him in um, anointing David. So let's keep reading. <clears throat> it says, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn, and you know, they had those, those ram horns, and they would fill those things with oil or whatever else, and when they filled it with oil, that was because they were going to go anoint someone. And that was a sign. That was an outward sign. Like the oil itself didn't do anything. It never does, right? But it's an outward sign, kind of like baptism. Um, when you pour the oil on someone's head, it's a visual of the Holy Spirit being poured out on that person. And so now they are anointed for God's purpose. And so God says, fill your horn, Samuel. We got work to do. Put oil in there because I'm going to send you to anoint someone. He says, I'm sending you to Jesse. The Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And I love that God says that. He says, okay, um, we're done with Saul. Now I'm going to get the king that I want. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. This is interesting. Um, how far has Saul fallen from the will of God, where now Samuel, the, the prophet of God, is afraid to do God's work, so afraid that he says, if Saul finds out that I'm going to anoint a new king, he's going to feel threatened, and he's going to kill me. The last time that we heard anything from Saul, he's begging Samuel to stay with him, right? He's saying, Samuel, worship with me in front of the people so that they won't, you know, Rebel against me. Samuel, please don't go. In fact, in, in chapter 16, um, in verse 27, it says, And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. Uh, so he's so desperate for Samuel not to leave him that he tears his robe. How far has Saul fallen? How deep into his 
uh, depravity is he were now, the next time we hear about him, Samuel's afraid for his life because Saul is so focused on clinging to his kingdom that God's already said it's not yours anymore, but Saul's trying to hang on to it, um, that Samuel is afraid for his life. So he says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. <clears throat> I like what God does here. Because God doesn't, God doesn't um, tell Samuel he's wrong. He's like, no, he's not going to kill you. I was like, no, he'll probably kill you. But, um, but he also doesn't, like, um, he doesn't give him a way out, and he doesn't tell him to plan. He just says, you're going to go, and you're going to do what I'm going to tell you to do. He says, uh, but the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. And so God does not lay out the plan. He doesn't. He doesn't deny, he doesn't uh, prove wrong Samuel's fear, but God doesn't share in the fear either. Um, he commands him to go anyway, and he says, if anyone asks you, just say, you're going to go offer a sacrifice, which was true, because any time there was, there was a consecration or a fellowship time, there was a, a sacrifice offered. Um, and then God says, I'll, I'll tell you the rest. I'll tell you the rest as you go. Um, and it'll become more and more clear. And sometimes when God commands us to go, even if there's a possibility of offense, even if there's a possibility of threat, even if there's a possibility of danger, in my experience, God rarely sees fit to explain himself. Um, he doesn't disprove our concerns. Those things are real. But God is unmoved, and God is... Um, his plan is unaltered by our fears, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, a lot of times we want all the details, right? We want to know, God, uh, what happens if, if I go and this person asks me this? God, what do I say if, 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 if I do what you're telling me to do and that person gets offended or this person gets mad? God, what happens if this thing, you know, goes wrong? And we're asking all these questions of God, and you say, I'm telling you to go, all right, um, and I'll take care of it. You just obey. Um, just say what I've told you to say. Don't say any more or any less. Say what I've told you to say. Do what I'm telling you to do, and, and, and stand back and watch and see what I have planned. And so I believe that's what's happening here. Um, again, Samuel is, is concerned, and, and we're, we're going to see in verse 14 exactly why it is that Saul's Saul's spiritual state, his mental state, his emotional state, all of those things have so degenerated to the point where Samuel, Samuel's fears were, were well warranted. It says in verse 4, So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? I think that's funny. Um, as far as we know, now we don't know how much time happened between chapters 15 and 16. It could have been a few years. It could have been a few months or weeks. We're not sure. Um, as far as we know, the last time Samuel made a public appearance in his prophetic role, he hacked the guy to pieces, right? <laughs> um, and so uh, maybe he's developed a reputation, like Samuel the hacker, you know. Um, and uh, he comes to this town, and it says that when the people, you would think when the people see the prophet of God coming, they would be excited, like, okay, God's coming to speak. No, no, they see Samuel coming, and Scripture says they trembled. And they said, are you coming in peace? You know, should we hide the swords? You know, uh, what's, what's going on here, Samuel? Um, so they're, they're a little troubled. Um, and so Samuel, it says, uh, he said peaceably, 
I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he, he looked at Eliab, who was Jesse's oldest son, and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, why does he think that? Um, because it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. I think in the NIV it says, um, don't look at the, uh, his appearance or his height. Okay. Um, sometimes we, we don't learn, <laughs> do we? Um, and it seems like, like Samuel is, uh, is kind of falling back on old assumptions or old perceptions. Because what's the first thing we learn about Saul when Samuel first finds him? That he's this good-looking guy who stands, you know, shoulder to head above everyone else in Israel, right? So he's this tall man, uh, broad-statured. He looks like, like, like a man's man. He's, he's, he's the kind of leader you would want. He's strong. He's all these things. So Samuel sees Eliab, who is also tall, and he says, oh, this, this must be him. And again, how quickly we forget the lessons of the past. How quickly we rely on our perceptions and on our ideals, on, on, on things that we think are important. Okay? Because by all accounts, Saul would have been the finest human specimen in the nation. He lacked no physical quality. He lacked no outward characteristic that you would want in a king. But we all know how that turned out. Um, and so now here's Samuel retracing his steps, and he's looking for those same qualities that failed the nation the first time. Um, in what ways are we like Samuel in this moment? Okay, so there's like a question for consideration, right? In what ways do we continually look for hope and for leadership and for direction in the same things and the same qualities and the same types of of people who let us down over and over and over again. And yet we keep coming back to those things. Like, okay, maybe this time, maybe this time. And, and I think God has to continually remind me the same way he reminds Samuel to say what God says here. Um, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance. Do not look at another person and, and think by the way they present themselves, by their physical qualities. I, 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 can know, I, I know what I'm getting out of this person. Um, do not look at his, at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. So important, guys, in so many ways. There's a whole sermon just in that passage. The Lord does not see as man sees. His ways are not our ways. The things that we think are important are not the same things that God thinks are important, right? He doesn't see the way we see, and thank God for that, um, the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And again, this, this theme of the heart is important. It comes back over and over and over again. Um, so Jesse called Abinadab, who was the second son, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So um, can you imagine having seven sons, and, 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 and Samuel comes to you and says, one of these is going to be king. Um, and you keep passing them over and over, and Samuel says, no, not that one, no, not that one, no, not that one. And then 
Um, Samuel said to, to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. We all know how this story goes, right? And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And um, I was asking myself this question, what, what was keeping David in the field? The traditional and probably the, the true um, reason is probably because he was the youngest and he was considered maybe the, the least, maybe not the least important, but um, when it comes to like a formal feast, well, we'll let the young one take care of the sheep while the rest of us important guys go and get nominated for kingship, right? Um, but I wonder also if maybe David shows to stay behind, um, maybe part of that shepherd's heart was an unwillingness to leave the flock. We're not sure. That's me just imagining. I don't know. But uh, I'm not sure that I'll have time in eternity to ask David that because I'll be too busy worshiping Jesus. But if I do find time, I might ask David, was that your choice or was that your dad telling you to stay behind? Um, I, I, I think I'd like to believe that as we see this shepherd's heart in David, part of that is to say, even to go to an important feast, even to go to this important sacrifice, I can't leave my sheep behind. Um, and so David doesn't come until he's summoned. Uh, and Samuel said, said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he went and brought him. Um, the New King James and some of the other older translations are kind of funny in how they describe like positive physical characteristics. Like, I don't know what this word means. It says, now he was ruddy, ruddy. Uh, now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. Um, I imagine that conjures a different image for different people. Some, some commentaries say that means he was fair complected and some say that means he was dark skinned. So no one really knows what that means. And I imagine if like years from now, if, um, if some of the, the funny little metaphors or ways we describe people were, were preserved for, for, for you know, later generations without context, without explanation, sometimes I wonder what people would think of the words we use. Like, um, um, uh, like you call someone like a, well, he's a tall glass of water, that person, you know. Uh, what, what does that mean to someone outside of context, right? Um, some of these things in Scripture, we kind of overanalyze and, like, oh, this could mean that, that could mean this. I just think it's just a funny way of describing someone. Anyways, that's not important. Um, the, the, the point is that he was a good-looking young man. He was healthy. Um, and the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And this is, this is, this is, this, um, this is an important transition, okay? Because here we see the Spirit of the Lord coming upon David. And in a minute, we're going to see that the Spirit of the Lord has departed from Saul. And, um, and I'm going to land on, on there for a little bit. But first, I want to, I want to go back to, to David's background, okay? Because what's the first thing? Remember, remember, what was the first thing we learned about Saul? That he was tall, and good-looking, and broad-shouldered, or whatever. What's the first thing we learn about David? Well, he's the youngest of eight brothers, um, which would have meant he was uh, last in line for everything, uh, last in line in terms of, of perceived cultural value and importance, last in line for his inheritance, last in line, apparently, to come and eat. Okay, um, so you grew up in a household with seven older brothers, you're going to learn humility from a young age, Right? 
Um, if you've grown up with like one brother, you know how that works. All right, imagine seven older brothers. So we know that David from a young age has learned humility. We know that David from a young age has learned how to serve and how to fill in the gap. And because he's a shepherd, we know that he has a shepherd's heart. So I have several passages here that I want to, um, I have four passages here that I want us to look at. Two of them describe the heart of David, describe what I consider to be the heart of David, and two of them describe the heart of Jesus. And I want us to look at the similarities. So in 1 Samuel chapter 17, this is next week, we're going to be, you know, the, the, the famous story of, of David and Goliath. Um, we have that one, 1 Samuel 17, 34 through 36. Um, I love, I love this. And you guys know the story, you know, David has, he's gone to, to, to the battlefront. Goliath is challenging the, the Israelites. Um, David's like, what's going on here? Why has no one killed this guy? I love it the way he describes Goliath, which we'll see in a minute. Um, uh, so David says, David's volunteering to go out and fight Saul. Uh, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it, when it arose against me, I caught it by its head and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. I love that. I kind of wish I was teaching next week, but I'm not. Um, I, I, this is like the second or the third time where David describes Goliath as an uncircumcised. I mean, he's just so, he's so offended. Like, like you dare, you know. Um, you don't have the mark of the holy God upon you, and you dare to, to insult the living God. You know? So David has this passion, this zeal. Um, and we see here, again, the heart of a shepherd. This is part of why I believe that David's absence from the sacrifice was because he didn't want to leave his flock. Because he's, he said, I have, I've risked my life against wild animals. I've left the 99, right, to pursue the one that was taken and rescue it and bring it back, okay? This is, what, this is how I've been raised. This is how I spent my childhood taking care of sheep. And then there's this testimony about David in Psalm chapter 78, uh, verses 70 through 72. And this, in, in, in this psalm, just so you guys know, if you want to go back and read it, it's like this history of, of, of God's moving through his people. And then towards the end of it, he has these few verses about David. And it says, he also chose David his servant he, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young. He brought him to shepherd Jacob or Israel. He brought him to shepherd Israel, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the, the integrity of his heart, and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. This was written after the fact. This was written after David's reign. It's the testimony of how he reigned, how he led, not just sheep, but people. We see that that same shepherd's heart, where he would protect, he would guide, he would lead, he would shepherd and provide for, he brought that same heart into his role as king and shepherded the people with integrity. Okay, so that's the heart. That's the, the, the heart after God's own heart. Humility, shepherding, servanthood. What does the Bible testify about Jesus in Matthew 18, 12 through 14? <clears throat> Jesus is talking, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more 
over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Um, so again, Jesus is saying, as, that this is in my heart too, that I, I, I rejoice more over the one who goes astray that I'm able to rescue and bring back than over the 99 who, who stay where they're supposed to be. And then in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 15, Jesus again is talking about himself. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, or just someone who's a hired hand, just like a regular employee, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. That'd be me, by the way. If I was a hired shepherd and a wolf was coming, I'd be like, peace out, sheep, you're on your own. Um, And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. Uh, The hireling flees because he is a hireling. He's He's just a hired hand. He's just an employee. He doesn't really care and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So, again... Um, I don't think it's just coincidence. I don't think it's just um, the person that God chose to be king just happened to be a shepherd. I think it's because of that upbringing, because of that experience that fed the heart of David, that made it a heart molded after the heart of God. So David was God's anointed king and shepherd over Israel because his heart was molded after um, and kind of again, as, as a precursor of God's anointed king over not just Israel, but over all creation, right? Jesus. Okay, <clears throat> verse 14. Here it gets kind of crazy. Um, so we just see that, that the God's spirit comes upon David from that day forward and never leaves him, okay? All this exciting stuff is happening. And then we kind of have a window into the background, again, of why Samuel was as afraid for his life as he was. It says in verse 14, But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Um, Distressing spirit is one of the the lighter translations I've read, right? Um, I've read some translations that say an evil spirit from God um, afflicted Saul. And, and some, again, another passage that we sometimes struggle with, okay? We can kind of understand where it says the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. But what does it mean? Because Scripture is clear that whatever this, this, this second spirit is, it's the same Hebrew word, um, ruha. I think, again, I'm not good at Hebrew, but the same ruha. Um, it's the same word for the good spirit that left and the bad spirit that came. Uh, and it's clear that the second one is from God. It's not like God said, I'm just going to remove my spirit, and whatever happens, happens, and then this evil spirit just kind of happened upon him, okay? Um, and so, uh, so we're, we're, we're going to land here for a minute and look at what this means. Um, first of all, um, I can think of few things that I am more terrified of than the thought of trying to lead God's people without God's anointing, Okay? And so there's a huge problem here when Saul refuses to let go of his position. And there's no reason for him to still be on the throne. God's already told him, I've rejected you as king. Samuel has already made it public. God's rejected you as king. He's going to go find someone else. And God is now removing his anointing spirit 
Um, there's no reason for Saul to think, I'm, I'm still the rightful king. He is currently um, occupying a throne that does not belong to him by God's own word. That's a huge deal, okay? Um, secondly, even though as, as new covenant believers we have this promise of God and, 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 and we should rest in this where God says, you know, I will never leave you or forsake you, and we know that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come and, 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 and dwell with us and never leave us, so we never have to worry that God's going to remove his spirit from us as new covenant believers, but God will and God has absolutely removed his anointing from people, even who are believers. And when you are functioning, um, at least on the surface, in service to God, without God's anointing, there are a few things I can think of that are scarier than that. Um, if you've ever experienced the Holy Spirit come upon you in a mighty way, in a strong way, and, and, and whatever ministry God's called you to, whether it's something like this where you're speaking in front of people or whether it's, it's having a personal conversation or praying over someone and all of a sudden you feel prayers come out of you that you never expected, um, whatever ministry God's called you to, there is an anointing aspect of that where at some point the Holy Spirit comes upon each of us in power and we begin to speak and to act by the will of God. When you experience that, it's awesome, and it's overwhelming, and you leave from that experience with this high, you know, you're like, whoa, that was so cool, I didn't even know, I I never knew to expect that, okay? Um, And then the thought of trying to replicate that, the thought of trying to do that in your own power is exhausting. And if you've ever tried to replicate the blessing and the anointing of God in your own power, you know the futility of that. You know the emptiness of that. You know the, the discouragement. And if you make a lifetime out of trying to do that, then we see where Saul's mindset is slowly but surely degenerating into where he, into where he ends up. Okay, so first of all, just, just the removing of God's anointing um, ought to have been enough. But then Scripture says, but then there's also this distressing spirit that is from the Lord that troubles him. And as difficult a time as we have with the idea of that, um, I, I don't think that like, an evil spirit, the way we think of it, is, is an accurate translation. Again, that Hebrew word that, uh, for, for evil, um, it could mean um, an evil spirit, kind of like a demon. Uh, it could also mean uh, being troubled, being harmed, being in distress. It doesn't have to be like spiritually evil, but just troubling, just distressing. And, and so I don't think God is sending a demon to torment Saul here. Um, but I do think that God is intentionally sending something to torment Saul. And if that still gives us trouble, we need to understand something. That if we are ever, as God's people, if we are ever clinging to something that God has already told us, that is not my will for you. We ever find ourselves in a place where we refuse to let go of a position, of a person or relationship, of a job, of a dream, of whatever it is, and God has already made it clear to us that is not my will for you, but we refuse to let go, God will absolutely send a discomforting, distressing, troubling, whatever word you want to use, um, spirit to make us uncomfortable in our rebellion. And I have found myself praying for that for myself and for others at times. Um, Lord, I, I've, I've prayed, Lord, if, if, if ever I am 
If ever I am walking or living in rebellion from what you've called me to, don't, don't give me peace in my sin. Don't let me have rest in my rebellion. Make me uncomfortable. And there are people that I care deeply about. And my prayer for them has been, Lord, if making them uncomfortable, if, 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 if pulling away your peace and your rest so that they'll be so uncomfortable in their rebellion that they, that they turn back to you, if that's what it takes, Lord, then that's my prayer for them. And so we, we have to believe that God, God is not above making us not just a little uncomfortable, but, but distressed and troubled when we are clinging to something that is not good for us and against his will. So I believe that is part of what's happening here. God has sent the spirit because Saul is occupying a throne that does not belong to him. And in some ways, in some ways, this is even a furthering of God's patience and a furthering of God's grace. We, we read in Ezekiel where, where God says that even if a wicked man who has lived his whole life in sin and in wickedness turns from his wicked ways and repents at the end of his life, God says that I will receive him, then, 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 that he will receive life, okay? Um, and so Saul, I think, I think in some ways God is saying it's not too late. Even though I've rejected you as king, I haven't rejected you as a person. I haven't re- rejected you as one of my children, um, there's still time, Saul, to make this right. And so I believe that this spirit is in itself even an act of grace, an act of God's patience. Um, and Saul's servant said to him, surely, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the, when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So they're like, let's go get a music player, someone who can play music, and they'll play softly for you, and you can like relax and chill out, and you'll be okay. It's just that easy, right? Um, so Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, coincidence, um, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, because that matters. And the Lord is with him. That's what matters. Okay, so all these things. Um, he's, he's talented. He's, he's fought off wild beasts. He's pretty good looking. Um, he's, he's, he speaks well. And the Lord is with him. Okay, that should have just like started and ended there. That's really all that matters, right? Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David. Who is with the sheep. Again, he's back with the sheep. Um, like if God had said, you're going to be king, you know, over Israel. You're going to be king over my people. I'm going to use you to rule my people. And you're as young as David probably was at this point. The last thing I would be doing is going back to the sheep. Okay. But again, the heart of David, I, who knows how he reacted? You know, the scripture doesn't really tell us what his emotional response was to that. But we find him back shepherding his flock. I just love that. Um, And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly. This is called favor. This is what we read in Scripture as God granting divine favor, unearned, unmerited favor. Um, So David came to Saul, stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. That was a high position, to be the king's armor-bearer. 
Then Saul said to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. So um, we see that God is using David's talents, but I want to I, I, I emphasize this, that um, there's so many qualities that we look at and in David, and we think, oh, this is why God used him. He used him because he was brave. He used him because he was a talented musician. He used him because of whatever else. But again, we can't lose sight of what God said. And he said, the reason I'm choosing him is because of his heart. Because his heart looks like my heart. His heart is so similar to mine. They, they, they beat in tune um, and this is why I'm, all, all the other things were just details that God, God used. God, God can redeem our talents, and he wants to. God's given us talents for a reason. Ultimately, if you tell God, God, I don't have any talents. I don't have any qualities. I'm not handsome and ruddy like David, whatever that means. I'm not any of these things, so you can't use me. And God will tell you. God, God will look you in the eye and say, I don't care about any of those things. I want to know what's, on, what's in your heart. You can't control the outward. But you can control what's in your heart. That's where God's looking. Imagine David again, called to be king. Okay, doubtless he has heard about Saul. Doubtless he's heard about both the positive and the negative, the successes and the failures, the victories and the losses. Um, He's heard about Saul's son Jonathan and Jonathan's armor bearer, you know, attacking this whole battalion of Philistines and winning. and, um, and, And God's telling David, now you're next in line to be king. What, what would it feel like to be David and then to be taking orders from Saul in his army? To be, and this is like later on, not, not right now. Later on in 1 Samuel, we're going to see, he, he becomes a soldier in Saul's army. He's already serving him in court. He's serving the very man who is unrighteously occupying the throne God promised him, right? Um, and he's doing so not with his fist shaking, not with bitterness, not with resentment. He's ministering before Saul. He's playing music for Saul to help him rest. Even though he knows God's called me to this throne that Saul has, but that's okay. Um, what do we call that? We call that humility. Humility, servanthood, a shepherd's heart. When was the last time during any election season, you drove by and saw one of those lawn signs. You know what I'm talking about? The lawn signs, it has the person's name. And the characteristic is humble. <laughs> I, I can't think of a single time that that's been lifted up as a reason to follow a leader in our culture. But God says, that's the heart I'm looking for. And that's the kind of person whose, whose heart beats in tune with mine. And God is still looking for leaders who share his heart. I'm going to close with this passage from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians, and and Pastor Victor shared this on Sunday. And in my opinion, you can never share this passage enough. Um, I love it. This is one of my favorite scripture because it tells us, it reveals to us the heart of our Savior, right? Um, It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was, which was also in Christ Jesus. I hear echoes of after God's own heart. 
right? Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Jesus didn't care about his reputation. Jesus hung out with, with, with the lowest of the low. And even though he never partook in their sins, he partook in fellowship with them. And he didn't care what people called him for it. Um, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Here's God, holy God almighty, all powerful, all, all wise, the, the creator of all that is. He could have come in any form he wanted to. He came in the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Paul says in Philippians, this is the calling on those who call Jesus our Lord. Let this mind be in you. Have the same heart that is in Jesus, let that heart be in you, um, of humility, of servanthood, of shepherding. Okay, God is still looking for men and women after his own heart to be leaders um, in the church, to be leaders in, in the world, um, and to usher in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we are um, we're thankful, Lord, that, that as we read this about David, um, it's also balanced out later with the stories that you have preserved for us to read about his failures, Lord, we don't have to look at David as, as some unattainable standard because he was perfect. He was, he was a flawed human being, worse than anyone sitting in this room, I would imagine. Um, and Lord, you still have uh, such, such high regard for him. You still use him to do um, amazing things for your cause and for your pleasure. And so, Lord, um, would, you, would you continue to nurture in our hearts a shepherd's heart? Um, a servant's heart, a heart of humility, and a heart that looks like yours, Father. Would our hearts break for the things that break your heart? Would our hearts rejoice for the things that you rejoice in, Father? And I pray in all these things, you would be glorified and you would be pleased. Be with us as we go from this place, Father. I pray as we continue in First Samuel, you would continue to nurture and to grow us for your will in Christ's name.